the, the purpose of our study here in Philippians 3 is, I want to be like that. We read of the Apostle Paul's passion for the Lord. And I hope, even better than COVID, that it's contagious. So let's uh, spend some time in Philippians chapter 3 together. Head all the way over to verse number 1 today. That's going to be our focus. Uh, last couple of weeks we spent in our Philippians passage. I just put it in First Kings, that's tonight. Okay, Philippians, here it is. Our first time we spent in Philippians 3, we looked at Paul's mentality. And it's defined in two words, more Christ. That's what he wants. His book, his letter here is full of that expression, especially verses 7 through 11. That's what he wants. That was his gain that he mentioned in chapter number 1. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. His desire was more Christ. As we saw that last week again, we saw in chapter 3, verse 12 through 16, his appeal. Because Paul doesn't want to do this alone. He wants all of us to catch it. That we who read this book as he wrote it to the Philippians first, that we would not only hear what Paul is doing, but as he says in verse 15 especially, let us therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude. We should reflect it too. And that's where we need to check our hearts, folks. Do we desire more Christ? Is that our heart's beat? Is that what we want? I'm going to help you through this passage to see how Paul laid it out and how we are called to participate in what Paul does. What does, what does Paul's life look like with his quest for more Christ? And it's going to be given to us in four commands. And we're going to study each one individually as we go through this part and understand how that phrase, more Christ, is made uh, practical in our lives through the uh, challenge of God's Word. The first command we have today, keep on being joyful. That's what we're studying here this morning. Uh, next time is keep on bewaring. That's command two. That's in verse two. In verse 17... Keep on becoming, and we'll fill in the rest of that in a minute, or not a minute, in about a week or two. Uh, and then keep on beholding, also in verse number 17. So four simple commands, I hope they're easy to remember. Keep on being joyful, keep on bewaring, keep on becoming, keep on beholding. All of these are centered around our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's very important for us to study. Today it's going to surprise you maybe a little bit in the way we look at verse number 1. It says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same thing again. It is no trouble to me, but is a safeguard for you. Usually we stop with the first phrase, and the second phrase we say, Huh? And so we're going to discuss those both phrases today. Heavenly Father, help us. 
help us with our grasp of not only this verse, but our grasp of the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul as he writes these words. And may we catch it. May we desire it more than anything else in our, in our walk, in our Christian maturity, that we become more and more like Christ. So help us today in our study. And may Jesus be just right out in front of every single one of us in our, our thoughts and in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Simple observation. Keep on being joyful. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, he says. You know, most of what Paul writes here, and I've mentioned this a couple weeks ago, concerns himself. He says it over and over again, I, 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 I. You see it, especially in verses 7 through 11. If you see the focus here, the pronoun I or me pops up all over the page. And he's writing that so he can set an example before us as readers of what it means to have a mentality for more of Christ. He uses himself as the example And from verse 12 on, he moves into the let us passages, where he invites you and me to join in with him. That's his appeal, that we strive with him together for more Christ. And so as you start to pick apart the verses a little bit more, you'll notice he uses commands. Now, there's not a lot of commands in chapter 4. Matter of fact, there's not a lot of commands in Philippians altogether. Not compared to some other books. But you who have studied the New Testament before, the epistles, you know commands are everywhere. It's hard to read any of the New Testament epistles without coming across commands. I want to ask you something. Have you ever thought why? Why are there so many commands in Scripture? Maybe you haven't. Maybe you said, well... It doesn't matter. Would it be something along this line? We're forgetful. We're lazy. Oh, I said that word. We're lazy. We need prodded. We need pushed. We need somebody to stand up and say, do this. Because we're inclined to... Take a vote on it and decide if we want to. And commands don't give you that option. There's probably a lot in human nature that can answer the question, why are there so many commands in the New Testament? You thought the Old Testament was full of commands. The New Testament has a lot, too, to the church. Do you know that there are two kinds of commands in the Greek language? If you've been here for several years, you know I've done this before. But there are two kinds of commands in the New Testament in the Greek language. Uh, The first one is what we call an aorist. A-O-R-I-S-T. Sounds like a funny name. It's generally used in past tense concepts. But it's also used in urgent situations. When it moves into the command form, it means start right now. And it is implied in the voice of the parent talking to their child. If you've ever used this before, do it! That's the command you see a lot in the New Testament. And that supposes something. It supposes that you're not doing it. 
and you better get started. Usually it's a danger that goes with it that if you don't do this right now, you are in serious trouble. That is one way a New Testament writer wrote commands. And there are urgent commands in Scripture. There's another way that they use, not the aorist tense, but the present tense. And when he uses the present tense, it's got the continuous concept that goes like this. Keep on going, keep on going, keep on going, don't stop. It's, it's nicer to hear that. Because it supposes that you're already in motion. That you're already doing what you're supposed to do. But there is another danger, and that is, I might not keep going. This is, this is the kind of command that goes with marathon runners who need to hear that word, keep going, keep going. Jack, do you ever say that when you're running? Just keep going. I mean, anybody else run long distances here? So, a few. Anybody else ever run ever in your life? I'm trying to get 100% participation here. Okay. It's hard to keep it going. When your body is screaming in a dozen ways, stop. Right? Well, I want to give you the secret, I believe, if I call it that, to the book of Philippians, and especially chapter 3. Many, many, many of Paul's commands to them are present tense. Keep going, keep going, keep going. He's not correcting them like he normally did with the Corinthians, who were not doing it. Get started. But here is something beautiful about our Philippian brothers and sisters in Christ. They were doing it. They were doing it. But there was a danger that Paul saw, and that is that they were likely to stop. The potential was there to stop. He gave the commands for a reason. And this is some of the hindrances that could come along that could stop you. If you're going along just fine and everything is good, but suddenly you have lost your focus. You, you've gotten distracted by something along the way. Now, give the Philippians opportunity to say what that could have been. Nero was already in charge. Persecution was not uncommon. Would you call that distracting? Mm-hmm. It's quite possible. They could have been distracted or focused away from their goal. And Paul's saying, keep going, keep going, keep going. It could have been the fear of the opposition. Fear. You know, that is so paralyzing. When, when fear strikes you, it stands up in front of you, and it's so big and all, that you may say, I can't move. And that might have been one of the concerns because of the nature of the persecution in their day. The 60s were very difficult years in the early church age. And that was, um, fear of opposition was big. Paul, Peter wrote about it too. Don't be afraid, he says. It's several of his words in the epistle. But fear of opposition could stop you. Paul says, keep going, keep going, keep going. You could even give up, by the way, if you realize how long the journey is. When you're standing here and looking way down and the finish line is far, far away, that's hard to keep the pace going. It's really hard. When I was a kid, we had to pick green beans in the garden. And my mom planted 
25 miles of green beans. <laughs> it felt like that as a kid. And you're out there in the middle of a summer day and you want to play baseball. And you're just starting on row number one. And you're looking down that row and thinking, I'll never get this done. That could stop you in a hurry too. We didn't stop because we'd be in trouble. But uh, how easy it is when you get a view for the distance, how far away you got to go yet. You could, you could need those words. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Another way is when the world offers you an easier route. You're on a tough road and they say, oh, here's a better route for you. Let's just go this way. And the better way and the right way is this way. And yet they're offering you something easier. And how many of us are prone to say, I like easy. And we're, we're very likely to move that way. And Paul's standing there at the corner saying, no, keep on going. Keep on going. And he's guiding us down the way. You see, to call anyone to Christ-mindedness is hard in any generation. It's hard to make that call to any generation. I would say especially in our generation because the church can easily settle for mediocrity. The church can easily settle for apathy. The church can settle in and say, you know, I I don't want to go deeper. I don't want to go closer. I don't want to be more likely to suffer. Let me be comfortable. And yet, there's scripture that pushes us on and pushes us on and pushes us on. And generally, those who have an ambition to be like Paul are unique. They're made a, matter of fact, some people call them in that term radical. They say, oh, this, this, this person, I don't know if I trust them. They're kind of crazy. And we step back from them and we, we don't treat them like they're normal. And you know what? To be Christ-liked in Christ-liked, Christ-like in our generation is not normal in this world. You're going to be different. You're going to be radically different. And so this call is a hard one to hear in the first place. But then to have somebody say, okay, you're doing it. Don't stop. Don't stop. Don't stop. Don't stop. That's quite a call. I've read this to you before. I'm going to read it to you again because I love this quote. It's from uh, A.W. Tozer. And it has to do with pursuit. Uh, a pursuit of being, in this context, being filled with the Holy Spirit. We talk about we're supposed to be filled by the Holy Spirit, right? We're supposed to, that means controlled. That means He guides your words and your thoughts and your actions and your attitudes. <laughs> is that asking too much? To be filled by the Spirit? This is what He wants you to understand. In this quote, He wrote it in a book called God's Pursuit of Man. And it's a reference to the Holy Spirit and the fact that we're supposed to be filled by the Holy Spirit, but are you sure you want to be? Here's what he says. Are you sure you want to be filled with the Spirit who, though he is like Jesus in his gentleness and love, will nevertheless demand to be the Lord of your life? Are you willing to let your personality be taken over by another, even if it, that other be the Spirit of God himself? If the Spirit takes charge of your life, He will expect unquestioning obedience in everything. He will not tolerate in you the self-sins, even though they are permitted and excused by most Christians. 
by the self-sins, I mean self-love, self-pity, self-seeking, self-confidence, self-righteousness, self-aggrandizement, and self-defense. You will find the spirit to be in sharp opposition to the easy ways of the world or of the mixed multitude within the precincts of religion. He will be jealous over you for good. He will not allow you to boast or swagger or show off. He will take the direction of your life away from you. He will reserve the right to test you, discipline you, chasten you for your soul's sake. He may strip you of many of those borderline pleasures while other Christians enjoy, but which are a source of refined evil for you. Through it all, He will enfold you in a love so vast, so mighty, so all-embracing, so wondrous, that your very losses will seem like gains and your small pains like pleasures. Yet the flesh will whimper under His yoke and cry out against it as a burden too great to bear. And you will be permitted to enjoy the solemn privilege of suffering to fill up that which is behind in the afflictions of Christ in your flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Now, with the conditions before you, do you still want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? You go, whoa, that's quite a question. The call of Philippians 3 is not in any way less than anything God calls us to do. When we look at a command, and we consider it carefully, God doesn't plan to rescind this. God doesn't plan to modify it or to cause it to match our culture. He commands. And what does He expect? You know the word. Are you afraid of it? Obedience. The first thing I want to identify with you is the people to whom Paul writes. It's very important. It's right there in verse number 1 of chapter 3. But it's good for us to see this. He calls them brothers. This is the Philippian church he's addressing. He calls them brothers. That's his family in Christ Jesus. And it may be simple to say it, but it's very true. It takes a believer to know what they are rejoicing in and who they are rejoicing of. You can't just throw that out to the world and say rejoice. They don't understand it. It's in Psalm 107, verse 2, that it says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Say what? Well, if you read Psalm 107, you'll see in verse number 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His mercy endures forever. Who should know that better than anybody else in this world but His children? We know that He's good. And we know that His mercy is great. And shouldn't we say so? We are the people who should say so. Because we're the recipients of that kind of love. So, He's addressing the believers here. Just so we understand, as He starts to write, the command is to a believer. Don't expect it of an unbeliever, but it's to a believer. Now, He also says, in the nature of this command, rejoice in the Lord We call it a present active imperative. I told you what present means. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. That's continuous. It doesn't let up. It doesn't stop. If you graph it, it does not look like the Dow Jones. All right? It's a straight line. It's not up and down and up and down according to your day, your whim, your circumstances, what you ate for dinner. It doesn't matter. 
Keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. I teach my Greek students to use that phrase, keep on. Whenever they see that command, keep on, keep on, keep on. It just adds a beauty to it. The word helps us to understand, don't quit. Keep on, keep on. Now, he's not saying, get started. He's saying, keep on. And that's the beauty of the phrase, is that they were already doing it. Hopefully, they're not distracted. Hopefully, they're not uh, uh, drawn away of their focus. So, keep going. It's an active voice. Now, that may sound interesting to you, an active voice. The Greek verbs always have voices to them. If it was a passive voice, that means somebody does it for you. It happens to you. It's kind of like when you need to have a pinch hitter because you can't do it. Somebody steps in and does it for you. In other words, Paul did not use that phrase because the Christian life is not a spectator sport. And you don't have somebody take your place for what you're called to do. You do it. So it's not passive voice, which is good. It's not middle voice, which middle voice means doing something for yourself. And this isn't rejoicing in yourself. That doesn't sound right, does it? Theologically, we wouldn't understand that anyway, because it's focused on Christ. So it's not that, but it is what we call the, pre, or the active voice, which means simply, you do it. No substitutes to take your place. Nobody else for, to, to step in for you. Don't leave this up to somebody else, your Sunday school teacher or an elder or a pastor or somebody. You do the rejoicing and I'll just sit here and ride along. That's not the command. Got it? It says, you keep on rejoicing. You do it. It's for you. Put it in big capital letters. Y-O-U. You. It's also in an imperative. An imperative is a command. It's not an option. It's a command. It's not something to be considered. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Any command not done is an act of disobedience. I, I don't like to say that because I know too many of them that I haven't done. But when the scripture gives us a command, it comes with an expectation that we will do it. That we will do it. Okay, so with all that said, here's the command. For the believer, continually keep on rejoicing. Well, that's easy, right? Well, that's the easy part to understand. But you've got to have it in its context so you see what it is. He's not writing this so that you have a pretty plaque on your wall. I mean, there's a lot of pretty plaques that say rejoice in the Lord, right? We like that. We have it on our Bible covers. We might have it on our stationery. Might even have a bumper sticker on the back of the car. It's easy phrase to see around the place, pictures on the wall, rejoice in the Lord. But remember, when he wrote this, there was an implication. Why do they have to keep on going? There must be a danger for them that would cause them to stop. The context reveals it. So you ready for this? This is the question. Why quit? Why would we quit rejoicing? Well, let's put it in the context. Where is Paul? He's in prison. That's a good place to start. All right, Paul's in prison. And why is he in prison? 
because of the gospel and the church and, and his testimony. And he's in prison for it, and he's telling everybody, hey, come and be like me. Yeah, and everybody wants to sign up for that one, don't they? He says, no. Well, that's where it starts. He says in chapter 1, by the way, verse number 7. Um, let's back up and just see a couple of verses. Let's see the context of this. Chapter 1, verse 7. It says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. Then jump down to verse 12, same chapter. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, circumstances? Yeah, he's in jail, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that, verse 13, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Matter of fact, it's going on to the place in verse number 14 that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord, have, because of my imprisonment, far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Would you suffer for the sake of somebody else being bolder in their faith? That's a big question. That's what Paul says. He's been through that. So, you're saying, okay, Paul, that, that's pretty tough. But Paul says, that's what I mean. I might live... I might die. After all, Nero's in charge. He's writing to the Philippians. He's pretty sure he's going to live, but, but what if he doesn't? Paul does, by the way, visit Philippi again, I believe, in the future. But remember his first visit? Way back in Acts chapter 16, Paul went into Philippi, and where did he spend the night? In the jail. That was quick. Yeah, he was there. Paul and Silas beaten, put into stocks. And they're in the innermost part of the prison. And in the middle of the night, everyone hears Paul complaining. No. Singing, praising God. He and Silas, and if you know the rest of the story, the, even the, the guard came to know Christ in, by faith before that night was over. So Paul's not calling the Philippians to do something he wouldn't do himself. Paul was a Philippian. I, I mean, Paul, like the Philippian citizens, were Roman citizens. They had the right as Romans, the status of a Roman citizen. Uh, to be beaten, to be imprisoned without a trial was unlawful. There was protection in the status of being a Roman citizen. It was safe to be a Roman, wasn't it? Not in Paul's life it wasn't, because there was something far more important than being a Roman citizen, and that was being a citizen of heaven, a, a, one who belonged to Christ. And so, you're saying, Paul, I don't know if I want to run with you. You're, you're asking me to give up my Roman protection too? If you go into the deeper context, what does he say by the end of chapter number one? He's talking about rejoicing. You can see it all over the pages. That's why people keep saying, you know, hey, this, this, is, this is something interesting. He says in verse 18, yes, I will rejoice. 
I find that very interesting. As you go into, he says, this is hard, this is hard, this is hard, this is hard, so I'm going to rejoice. And then you go into chapter 2, and you start into that context, and you start to see that Paul keeps saying, keep on rejoicing, don't quit. You get into chapter 3, and chapter 3, verse 1, where we're studying, he says, uh, I know it sounds irksome to some people, or troubling to some people, but it's not to me to write the same things to you. It's a safe thing to write these things to you. What is safe? What do you mean keep on rejoicing? Is that what's safe? I want to show you something. It's rather, rather interesting. Same things, he keeps saying. He says, I'm writing the same things to you. And if you start tracking that phrase, keep on rejoicing, you're going to find that the majority of times he says it is after this verse, not before it. As a matter of fact, he says same things, not same thing. Keep on rejoicing would require saying the same thing. So now you're saying, what, what then is it, if it's not rejoicing, the Lord is the same thing he keeps writing to us, it's the same things, what does he keep reminding us of? All the way through this book is warnings. Warning, warning, warning. Back in chapter number one, where he's talking about the imprisonment and the challenges of the faith that puts you in there, he says in verse 28, don't be terrified by your adversaries. says that in verse 28. He says, uh, verse 29, you can suffer for Christ's sake. In verse number 30, chapter one, you're having the same conflict that you saw in me. Paul's talking about all this, and suddenly he burst out with, keep on rejoicing. And then he goes into the next section. That's dangerous on the outside, but the next section, dangerous on the inside. You get into chapter 2. Do all things without murmuring and complaining. Let your life be blameless and harmless, verse 15 says. As sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation... You're to shine as lights in this world. And so guess what he tells them to do? It's in verse 17 and 18. Keep rejoicing. When you get to chapter 4, you've got two sisters. Sisters in the Lord. They're having a challenge with each other. I beseech Euodius and I believe Syntyche. These two sisters in verse number 2 to live in harmony in the Lord. There's a lot we don't know about what's going on here, but he also entreats the rest of them. True companions, he says in verse 3, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are on the book of life. And guess what he follows it with? Rejoice. Rejoice. He says it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. So what does Paul mean when he says to write these same things to you. If he just meant keep on rejoicing, you could just stick the old happy face on and just move on, right? I'm going to just keep rejoicing. Even though there's trouble, I'm going to keep rejoicing. And we just march on down the road. But how does it keep you safe? How does that keep you safe? He says, it's a safe thing for you that I write these things. What, what's safe in all this? Let me show you very simply in chapter 3 what I believe he's talking about. 
when he says rejoice, he gives a very important phrase with it. It's not just rejoice, is it? What do you see? In the Lord. He qualifies that phrase with what we call the sphere. The, the preposition leads to this. The sphere of your rejoicing. If this sphere is the Lord, your rejoicing's in there. In the Lord. In the Lord. Who is the Lord? He's supreme. Supreme in authority. He's the controller of everything. Do you believe that? I do. He's in charge, folks. I love a sovereign God, don't you? Sure helps when you read the newspaper. You know, we've got a God who is in charge. Someday the world will recognize that. You know, the heathens rage in vain. Read Psalm 2 for a little while and say, Woo! <laughs> they all think they've got control of things. No, it's, it's the Lord. And of all people who should know that, it should be us. He says, so rejoice in the Lord. Here are the dangers that can make you quit. Remember? There's enemies out there. There's enemies to the cross of Christ. There's suffering for the name of Christ. There's paralyzing fear because of the things that come to you because you love Christ. This mentality of Paul's in chapter 3, verse 10, it goes beyond just living for Christ. He says, I want to suffer for Christ, the fellowship of his suffering. He goes that deep, that far, and most people don't see that as a wonderful thing. That's asking too much, Paul. He says in 128, don't be afraid, don't be terrified by your adversaries. John Calvin made this little quote. He said, Satan never ceases to dishearten believers. He endeavors to irritate us by the bitterness of the cross so that it comes to make God's name unpleasant to us. He says, we rest in the taste of God's grace alone so that all our annoyances and sorrows and anxieties and griefs are sweetened because we know him. More times than not, the temptation is to desert it, to walk away from it. It's just too tough. We move our focus away from Christ and we start to see the enemy. And the enemy gets bigger, by the way, the more you look at him. We start to see our, our opponents as if they're in control. Paul's command is to secure them. Because he doesn't just say, well, be happy. He says, rejoice, watch it again, in the Lord. That means you've got to know Him. To trust Him. And as you trust Him, the dangers are out there. The dangers on the outside of opposition to you. The dangers on the inside of murmurings. And disputings in chapter 2, verse 14. You know how wonderful it is to serve the Lord when everyone's complaining? That's a happy sound, isn't it? When I was sharing this with the camp a couple weeks ago, months ago maybe, it's now a couple of months, I gave them a test. We tried it. It worked really well. We wanted to see, what does murmuring sound like? The word in the Greek is gungosmos. Uh, Right? Gong, like gong, gos, moss. 
Gongasmas. Now we're going to see what that sounds like. So everyone in this first quarter just start saying Gongasmas, Gongasmas, whatever pace you want, just start saying that. And after I get you started, I'm going to point to this group and they're going to do it too. All right? And then we'll have that group back there and that group back there and then the balcony. We're going to have five groups here. Ready? Let's see what it sounds like. Gong, gaz, mas. Ready? Keep going. Keep going. Don't quit. Okay. Good. That's so beautiful. Let's have them back there. Add to our chorus. Really pretty. This is really gorgeous. Okay. That group back there. Oh, yes. Everybody upstairs. Ah, you love it, don't you? Doesn't that just make your day? Why did the Lord choose that for the word to say, that annoys me? (laughs) That's what it does. That whole word is annoying. And that's, I'm sorry to say, that must be before God's doing an awful lot anymore. That this is what he hears coming from the churches rather than let there be praise. We're going, gong gosmos, gong gosmos, gong gosmos. Does that keep us from running and being joyful in the Lord? Oh, yes, it does. You want to stop it in a hurry, start adding arguments and disputing and dissensions and doubts and opinions and speculations, all in that definition of that word, into the, into the recipe. That will take your attention off the Lord in a hurry. It will stop us. It will divert us. It will keep us from focusing on who? Christ. It works that way every time. Our enemy knows that. and He inserts that so often. That's why this, is, this command sounds so easy. Keep on rejoicing. But in its context, you have to understand it. We have to keep rejoicing in the Lord. We have to realize He is the one that we serve. He is the focus of it all. Let's keep our eyes on Him as we rejoice. You see it? That's what's safe for you and safe for me. That's what we need to be doing. And that's where the challenge comes because it's so easy to get our eyes off our Lord Jesus. It's so easy to have Him diverted to some other focus. That's why... The phrase is, more Christ. We need it more, and more, and more, and more, and more. You see it? That command is pulling you that way. That's what one part of, how do you rejoice in the Lord? How do you do this? You don't let your focus be distracted to anything but Christ. You need more. You need more. That's the first command. Next week we'll talk about bewaring. That one's a lot of fun, too. All right, there's your challenge that's set before you. When you see that phrase, rejoice, don't forget the last three words. In the Lord. All right? Heavenly Father, we need help with this already. We're looking at this text, and we see it, and we see that these things are not so foreign to us. What happens in our world today is so fresh, like this ink is still wet. And we come to you today, Lord, and say, please, do your work in our hearts and drive us closer to Christ. We need more. We need more of Him. And I pray, Lord, that you might draw our attention that way. Please do it. 
that Jesus Christ be praised among us like our hearts want him to be. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.